Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favourite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from The New Yorker archive to read and chat about, along with one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Tiana Clark, whose forthcoming poetry collection, I Can't Talk About the Trees Without the Blood, won the Agnes Lynch Starrett Poetry Prize. She has also received the Academy of American Poets University Prize and the J.C. and Ruth Hall's Poetry Fellowship from the Wisconsin Institute of Creative Writing. Welcome, Tiana. Thanks for being with us. Hello. So uh, the poem you picked is Repentance by Natasha Trethaway. Now, you won't know this, but this is one of the first poems I picked for the magazine. Uh, Will you tell us why did you pick this poem? Um, I chose it, one, because I think Trethaway is the queen of ekphrastic poetry, um, (laughs) if there is such a title. Just remind our listeners what ekphrastic poetry means. Yeah. So it comes from the Greek ek, meaning out, and phrasis meaning to like, speak. Um, I kind of, my definition is, is to make a static image sing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's looking, you know, traditionally a visual art and a poem is not, it's not just mere description, but for me, it's how does that description move into a point of revelation? Yeah. Not a small feat to do and do well and much less be the queen of. And I agree with you that she really writes about uh, art well and photographs especially. And uh, I love what she's doing in this poem. Why don't we hear it and then talk more about it? Here's Tiana Clark reading Repentance by Natasha Trethaway. Repentance after Vermeer's made asleep. To make it right, Vermeer painted, then painted over this scene. A woman alone at a table, the cloth pushed back, rough folds at the edge, as if someone had risen in haste, abandoning the chair beside her, a wine glass nearly empty, just in her reach. Though she's been called idle and drunken, a woman drowsing, you might see in her gesture melancholia. Eyelids drawn, she rests her head in her hand. Beyond her, a steel life, white jug, bowl of fruit, a goblet overturned. Before this, a man stood in the doorway. A dog lay on the floor, perhaps to exchange loyalty for betrayal. Vermeer erased the dog and made of the man a mirror, framed by the open door. Pentimento, the word for a painter's change of heart. Revision on canvas means the same as remorse, after sin. Were she to rise, a mirror behind her, the woman might see herself as I did, turning to rise from my table, then back as if into Vermeer's scene. It was after the quarrel, after you had again too much to drink, after the bottle did not shatter, though I'd brought it down hard on the table, and the dog had crept from the room to hide. Later, I found a trace of what I'd done. Bruise on the table, 
the size of my thumb. Worrying it, I must have looked as she does, eyes downcast, my head on the heel of my palm. In paint, a story can change, mistakes be undone. Imagine, still life with father and daughter, a moment so far back, there's still time to take the glass from your hand or mine. That was Repentance by Natasha Trethway, which was published in the November 20th, 2017 issue of the magazine. Wow. So hearing that poem, I always say wow after I hear it. It's like a a true thing that happens, you know, when you hear a poem like that. And I'm wondering what this poem does to me uh, isn't just ekphrastic, you know, it isn't just about art. It's about how art represents something, maybe even an ideal that is not always lived or, or impossibly lived. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's so interesting what Natasha does here. We kind of start off with this idea of to make it right as if something had already been wrong before we even entered the poem. And to me, so much of this poem is about revision. In some ways, you can almost read it like an Ars Poetica, in a sense. I'm also interested in what it's doing with form. And I thought it was really interesting that the punctuation isn't here, but we still have these kind of signposts. These gaps. Yeah, these kind of sejura, these kind of little gaps of air, as though it was written with punctuation and then scrubbed away to kind of mirror that sense of pentimento. This idea of in art and in mirroring life, can we go back and maybe exchange our rage for kindness? Which to me, it's heartbreaking because I don't, we can, but I think the poet hopes that we can. Yeah. And, and this, the imagining, the last mm-hmm. three or four lines, imagine still life with father and daughter. A moment so far back, there's still time. Yeah. There's um, a beautiful kind of negotiation or, or exchange in the poem between the painting and the life, but also between the father and the daughter, between the still life, which is not a life, mm-hmm. and the living. And there's a sense the living and the lost, the mm-hmm. dead or, or gone from us. Um, and the title, too, of course, changes the poem, Repentance. It's not simply made asleep or, or even still life with father and daughter, which doesn't give us the same tone. What do you make about the mentions of sin in the poem, the mentions of kind of this overarching overlay of, of repentance? The sense of that gnawing kind of grief of wanting to change the past, which is so interesting that you you know brought up that sense of so far back, there's still time. Is this, this poem, the temporal experience of this poem seems kind of timeless, past, present, future. Um, the poet entering the scene, this mirroring back, and that heavy sense that I think repentance brings that almost, that seems a sense of timelessness to me as well. Mm-hmm. I think also just because I grew up as a lap Christian, so I think maybe I'm drawn to the, the title because um, I think I'm oh, always yeah. trying to repent for something. Um, <laughs> oh, I definitely think it has that feeling. <laughs> um, and, you know, even the things that I think the poet sees are really different than maybe if you just pass it in a gallery or something. Mm-hmm. Though she's been called idle and drunken, a woman drowsing, great word, you might see in her gesture melancholia. You know, there's a, there's a kind of seeing past the surface, which of course is sort of what pentimento means, this this underpainting that then later will sh- shine through. And he, I always thought of pentimento as uh, 
not necessarily the change of heart, but like the past reappearing mm. through uh, the present. But here, it's quite specific. And I think she's done a really powerful job of rereading Pentimento as the word for a painter's change of heart. Mm-hmm. Revision on canvas means the same as remorse. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I actually went to the Met to view the actual painting, you know, the pixelated pictures online and zooming, trying to see if I could find (laughs) the the dog and the man. But actually, in person, you can see a little bit of the outline Uh of the dog. And that's that sense, though, that, you know, our sins are kind of bubbling up, always kind of chasing us. Like, they're always going to be there present. Um, There was just that little bit of a whisper. And I like the idea that, you know, as poets, we have our obsessions and flubbed subjects that we can never really run away from. And with Trethewey's work, the the father figure and the poems that haunts and hovers the seam in a lot of these poems it made me think of the poem Enlightenment, um, which is another ecrastic poem at Monticello with the kind of portrait of Thomas Jefferson. Um, so when that got to that still life with father and daughter, that just vibrated as well for me. Yeah. What, what was it like to see it? It was kind of magical. Um, it was very moody. Um, I know that you know, Vermeer is kind of supposed to be this master of light, but seeing it in person versus on my laptop screen, of course, yeah. I was just really taken aback uh, with the light play. Um, and it was actually really interesting, too. She kind of, to me, I couldn't tell. I was kind of, I had questions of the painting. I was like, I want to see what she looks like. Do I think she's drunk? Do I think she's asleep? And she actually, to me, had a little bit of a kind of cheeky smirk. Hmm. Um, yeah, but it was really interesting to see. And then I kind of reread Natasha's poem, I also got a, a more of a sense of that portrayal that Trethewey talks about in the painting, the tablecloth being kind of turned up, the doors open, the chairs kind of turned as though someone had just left after a fight. I got that sense mm. in person a little bit more than um, that I did online. It was very powerful to kind of see. Well, and, and as we all know, but forget, like paintings are better in person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and um, I think there's also this... Uh, I don't know. There's this way in which she's identifying in a powerful way, I think, with the creator, Mm. with the reviser, with the change of heart. Mm. But also specifically, as you said, like a kind of Ars Poetica poem about poetry with this painter, you know, and and I think there's something really powerful about that, especially because it's not being used to say I'm this powerful figure, but also I'm a creator. I'm someone who is making but also making from life and have, you know, these remorse uh, feelings, or you know, the the speaker in the poem does. Um, it's really powerful, and uh, that bruise on the table, mm. I think, yeah. is really a great image. Yeah, yeah. I was also really taken back with that, this idea of the the mirror, um, where she derives a mirror behind her, the woman might see herself as I did, and that's the first time we get kind of the lyric "I" entering the poem. And mm-hmm. then it's also interesting with the crastic, so you have kind of the scene object, the speaker of the poem, and then the audience person, and then we almost enter the poem at that point. And it kind of becomes this triangle where all these mirrors are kind of like reflecting and, and have this energy off of each other. And that scene happens so fast where I felt like, oh, like in a flicker of a moment, the speaker's in the poem, I'm in the poem. Mm-hmm. And then we have this flashback scene. Yeah. And uh, I love this kind of engine of anaphora after, after, after. We don't even know what the fight's about. We don't need to know. Well, the quarrel. Yeah. You know, and, the, and I have the sense that the quarrel... You know, it's obviously an argument or something, but it's also this larger kind of quarrel mm. with existence, I feel. Um, and I, I feel like Natasha's always able in those small moments to capture that larger kind of ongoing argument with enlightenment, with life, with light and dark mm-hmm. uh, in, in its biggest senses and in its racial senses, I think, too. And I really think that 
is powerful in this poem. Yeah, absolutely. Another reason that I'm drawn to Natasha is I'm also mixed, and we have the same kind of background where my father is white, my mom is black. So she was kind of my first kind of permission-giving biracial poet of just like, oh, how do you write about these tensions in your skin? How do you have this massive public history intersected with this personal history? And so how she kind of navigates that tension on and off the page is really powerful for me. Well, that's an excellent way to turn to your poem, uh, Nashville. So in the October 9th, 2017 issue, we published your poem, Nashville, uh, which we'll hear you read in a moment. But is there anything you'd like to say about it at first? Um, I'll just say I, I was thinking about city as a crastic mm. and kind of thinking about place in that way. And I've been having these larger questions about the South. Um, but yeah, maybe I should just read it first and then we can... Yeah, let's, let's get into it. Dive in. Nashville. Nashville is hot chicken on sopping white bread with green pickle chips. Sour to balance prismatic flame-colored spice for white people. Or rather, white people now curate hot chicken for $16 and two farm-to-table sides. Or maybe they've hungered fried heat and grease from black food and milk but didn't want to drive to Jefferson Street or don't know about the history of Jefferson Street or Hell's Half Acre north of downtown where freed slaves lived on the fringe of Union camps, built their own new country, where its golden age brought the silver streak, a ballroom bringing Basie, Ellington, and Fitzgerald. First-run movies at the Ritz, and no one had to climb to the balcony. 1968, they built the interstate. I-40 bisected the black community like a tourniquet of concrete. There were no highway exits. 120 businesses closed. Ambulance siren driving over the house that called 911, diminishing howl in the distance, black bodies going straight to the morgue. At the downtown library, a continuous loop flashes snick videos with black and white kids training for spit and circular cigarette burns as the video toggles from coaching to counters covered in pillars of salt and pie and soda, magma of the movement. On I-65, there is a two-tone Confederate statue I flick off daily on my morning commute. Walking down 2nd Avenue past neon honky-tonks playing bro country and cash and herds of squealing pink bachelorette parties, someone yelled nigger lover at my husband. Again, walking down 2nd Avenue, I thought I heard someone yelling at the back of my husband. I turned around to find the voice and saw myself as someone who didn't give a damn. Again, I turned around to find that it was I who lived inside the lovely word made flesh by white mouths masticating mashed sweet potatoes. For my mother's, mother's, mother. Free love was her name. A slave from Moyer, North Carolina, with 12 children, with names like Pansy, Viola, Oscar, Stella, and Toy, my grandmother. There is always a word I'm chasing inside and outside of my body, a word inside another word, scanning the OED for suit-covered roots. 1577, 1584, 1608, tracing my finger along the boomerang shape of the Niger River for my blood. 1856, 1866, 1889, who said it? A hyphen crackles and bites, burns the body to a spray of white wisps. Like when the hot comb with its metal teeth cut close to petroleum jelly, edging the scalp. Sizzling. Southern babble. Smoking the hive of epithets hung fat above the bustling crowds like black and white lynching photographs. Mute faces. Red finger pointing up at my dead. Some smiling, some with hats and ties. All business. As one needle-like lady is looking at the camera, as if looking through the camera, at me and the way I'm looking at my lover now. Halcyon. And constant. 
Once my mother-in-law said, watch your back, and I knew exactly what she meant. Again, I turn around to find that I am the breath of Apollo panting at the back of Daphne's wild hair, chasing words like arrows inside the knotted meat between my shoulder blades, four violent syllables stabbing my skin, enamored with pain. I am kissing all the trees, searching the mob, mumbling to myself, who said it, who said it, who said it. That was Nashville by Tiana Clark. That's a very powerful poem. Thank you. Uh, I love how the poem weaves, as you were mentioning, public history and private history in this poem. We have Hell's Half Acre. We have a mention without naming uh, Prince's Hot Chicken. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> I've been to Nashville and made a pilgrimage to Prince's who invented hot chicken. Okay. What spice level did you do? Uh, you know, I did hot. Uh, whatever the medium was. I don't okay. think I can do the okay. The hot is hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've heard stories about the hot. Yeah. But so you mentioned that and then you mentioned, you know, things that I think are familiar to people in some way, certainly to people who've lived them, but I mean – we all have experienced in some way urban renewal, the tourniquet of concrete, a great phrase. Um, but you give life to it in this powerful way. And I love the sort of little references, whether it's the tourniquet or the pillars of salt. That's a really nice turn of phrase. Um, but capture the the powerful reenactments that these places undergo and are still undergoing. Yeah. Um, Nashville is, is a town I've been to a lot, actually, and it's really transformed even quite recently. What kind of transformations were going through you in writing this poem? Yeah, so I graduated from Tennessee State University, the historically black college on Jefferson Street. Um, and so I did a lot of research um, kind of about um, what happened in the 60s and 70s and how Jefferson Street, I mean, it used to be this vibrant black community. And because it was kind of choked off from this main highway, it just kind of went into collapse. Sure. Um, and now Nashville is the new it city. It's like the number one destination <laughs> for these really? bachelorette and bachelorette parties. For bachelor parties. parties, yeah. And it's, it's very... just wild because there's this massive gentrification that's happening in the city. And it's happening on all certain levels. I mean, to me, I see in the food, like I went, there's a place in Nashville, I won't name names, that's like $37 for catfish. I'm just like, for catfish? Are you kidding me? For bottom feeder fish. Yeah. yeah. Which are delicious. Yeah. Let's let's be honest. But wow, that is a lot. Yeah. So there's these ways that I think like food and racism and and power and justice are Mm -hmm. linked. I was actually reading a Terrence Hayes poem called Pittsburgh. And he was like, Pittsburgh is a lady like jabbering at the bus. And when I read that, I was like, what is Nashville? Like if I had to say, and that first line just came to Nashville's hot chicken. Because when I studied the history of hot chicken and went into kind of um, the origin of this like black owned family business and now all these other. Tell us the story of uh, Prince's hot chicken. Okay. This is my rough Tiana Clark paraphrase. Let's get it. Yeah, let's get it close. Basically, hell hath no fury, like a woman's hot chicken scorn. Um, I think the original um, Prince's, you know, matriarch, the the mother, the dad was stepping out. She was pissed. She's like, you know, and every night she would come home and make him fried chicken. So she was like, this mother, <laughs> beep beep beep. And so I think she got some lard and. Uh, like red pepper sauce and mix it together yeah. and just try to make it as hot as she possibly right, could. Right, to, to get him. Yes, to kind of get revenge back um, on the sense of betrayal. Fried it, came home, and he ate it and ended up loving it. And she was like, no. Also, <laughs> but it started a business. It started a business, so there you go. What was the other part you were going to say, though? Oh, I was going to say that the, then he took it off and uh, 
I was going to say something about like men taking the power back from women, but we'll keep <laughs> yeah, it on the positive. Okay, let's let's. <laughs> I mean, both are all there in the poem. Yeah. I think. I think the poem is about these power dynamics, mm-hmm. you know. And honestly, I, I think what's I love about that story is, which I've heard consistently and heard from the, you know, it's a true story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. A lot of our stories of our origin, uh, our food origins, especially, aren't exactly true, but that one is true. Um, you know, is that it has changed. I mean, you know, even corporate chicken uh, mm-hmm. now has hot chicken sometimes, you know. And yeah. I do agree that there's this, you know, how do we honor the original with, while also sort of celebrating this innovation that. Yeah. Yeah. And Princess is kind of in North Nashville. It's kind of hard to get to. And so mm-hmm. all these um, places that pop up in kind of Nashville proper, you know, for me, they've made it convenient for people. And I think about the word convenience of like, how do we make. Um, kind of black history digestible or commodified. And so I had those things in mind. Also, this this ugly Confederate statue of Robert E. Lee off of I-65, I just, it's so much in my consciousness. It just like pinged every time I would go across it. And just thinking about kind of our last couple years of our major tipping points in these political moments about what these statues represent. I love a lot of the, that that research that you talked about makes its way into the poem, especially toward the second part of the poem. There is always a word I'm chasing inside and outside of my body, a word inside another word. Uh, and these, the poet's experience, I think, is there in the poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, these dates, the great boomerang shape of the Niger River, that's really lovely too. And I think it really captures um, not just the place, but the speaker's feeling, mm-hmm. the emotional state, which is influenced by this place. Mm-hmm. Um, the frustrations and the, the challenges of... of uh, even just walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And how did it come? Did it come like this, like all the different pieces all at once? Or was it, you know, did you always know it would end with these questions or one question repeated? Well, I'll spill the tea. So I originally started kind of in media res where just I wanted to go immediately in the action of the epithet being thrown. Um, and it was actually one of my mentors um, in my MFA program that was like, no, you need to go back into the history. You need to go do some more research. Um, cause I had kind of glosses there and I loved doing research. I thought I want to be a history major for a long time. So when I started kind of uncovering all of these connective tissues within, within Nashville, I kind of went back and that's what kind of foregrounded before I even got to the epithet being thrown. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like most things that happen, you know, your, your heat's kind of getting hotter and flaring up in your chest. And I kind of got in this rhythm once I kind of got to, um, Apollo and Daphne and I was thinking about this chase and I was thinking about kind of predator becoming prey and coming back again and kind of being caught up in that scene of the speaker being in this kind of like wild mob. Uh, and, you know, that who said it can be read a couple of ways. Um, mm-hmm. It can kind of be this indictment, like, who said it? Mm-hmm. Or kind of be the dismay of, like, who said it? And that mm-hmm. kind of toggling mm-hmm. between the indictment and dismay is, I feel like, something that I constantly live with in this body, this kind of brown body. I think there's different—I read it different times sometimes because of how I'm feeling politically, those two states, volatile states. Mm-hmm. Well said. Indictment and dismay. That's a beautiful uh, set of things and hard to capture in one poem. And I feel like you you have in much more in this poem. I noticed uh, we have an advanced copy of your new book, I Can't Talk About the Trees Without the Blood. Uh, a great title. Thank you. Um, does it come from something specific? So I have a long poem in the book called The Rhyme of Nina Simone, where I off of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge. And so I was thinking about if I was going to be interrupted on the way to somewhere, who would interrupt me? And I was like, it's got to be the ghost of Nina Simone. And it's basically a foil, a way to talk to myself. And she's interrogating me, honestly, about 
my obsessions and, you know, why are you talking about black pain? Hasn't it already all been said before, you know? And I answer, you know, I can't talk about the trees without the blood, which for me is I cannot look at the landscape of the South and not see the violence that was there. I will always see a row of galleys where black bodies once stood. And this line, like, I'm kissing all the trees. There's this love-hate relationship I have with the South. I, I brought in the poem by Langston Hughes, The South, where he says, honey lips syphilitic, that is the South, and I who am black would love her. But she spits in my face, and I who am black would give her many rare gifts, but she turns her back upon me. And I just like that love-hate relationship. Like, I'm just, like, on my sure. knees constantly begging the <laughs> South. But it, I'm getting, you know, punched with this violence all the time. So that's where the title comes from. And, and it's a triptych. So it's in three sections. I Can't Talk is one section. About the Trees is one. And then About the Blood. And so Nina Simone herself, I mean, what an important figure, wrote Mississippi Goddamn mm-hmm. after the death of MLK, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. The song was, you know, not played because of the title, surely, but also because of its political yeah. uh, intent. And how does she figure for you? I mean, obviously, there's a part of this that is the woman part of uh, Simone's power, I think, and the black woman part. Yeah. Or for poetry to me is a sense of black persistence. Mm. And so starting back with Phyllis Wheatley, thinking about this sense of she was captured, she was intelligent, and she was able to kind of write these poems and to me in these coded ways of— Absolutely. and, And for me of how to survive— and then as we go on, I won't go through the whole history, but, you know, with the black arts movement and now in the modern contemporary movement, I have so much permission from this lineage to kind of say what I need to say and write what I need to write to survive. And I think Nina Simone gives me that sense of permission to kind of ride that wave of activism and then just that, that sense of Juinde, that mysterious force, you know, that no philosopher can explain. But her voice is so, you can't trace it. It's almost diasporic. It's almost like there before the world was built. And so... There's that sense that and a sadness in her that I, I often kind of identify with. And so I think for her, she gives me permission to kind of roam those really like those depths. What about you also talking about Phyllis Wheatley? You have these conversations yeah. with her, I see. I see that there's one, two, seven, 14. Uh, are there 15 more that we can look forward to? Or Yeah. So I when I was doing the research on Phyllis Wheatley, I found that out of all of her correspondence with all these fancy white people, there was only one black person, Obor Tanner. Obor, yeah. And, but we don't have Obor's letters. We only have um, Phyllis Wheatley's letters. And so I wanted to imagine, what if I were to be this persona of Obor and write back to her? And it's kind of the, the first evidence we have of, like, the earliest black women's writing community. Oh, and what's yeah. so funny is Phyllis Wheatley was a hustler. She's like, girl, buy five of my books. Like, I need you. <laughs> and, I mean, that's my modern <laughs> paraphrase. I, I, we know, the, the, yeah, it's approximate <laughs> yeah. Uh, to what she said, but it's pretty close. Yeah, and I was also interested in the way in which the letters had to be in favor of the white owner of the house and were also mishandled or there would be gaps in time. And it made me think about also Phyllis Wheatley's attestation before her first book where she had to have, I forgot, like over 20 names of all these prominent sure, white yeah. men say this was this is her work. You know, she is this brilliant slave. And it made me think about all the, the hurdles and hoops to be a black artist in this modern publishing world. Um, that's often a white world. So how do you carry yourself as a black artist? Well, I love those letters to Ober. They're really powerful. And they're, that's where she's much more explicit at times about, you know, an anti-slavery statements mm-hmm. are much more found there. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, as I've argued before and you well know, you know, she's in her work codedly talking about slavery, yeah. thinking about 
these questions through Greek gods. And you do something similar when you bring in Daphne in your poems. The elusive quality of, and I mean both elusive and elusive quality of black writing, I think is really captured in your work. And in, in the cover, which is drawn by one of our contributors and, and uh, podcast folk, uh, Terrence Hayes. Tell us how the cover came about. So I really love Terrence Hayes' work. Huge fan. Um, another permission-giving poet. Lightheads Guide to the Galaxy is one of my favorite poems. Um, and I also saw an article where he did paintings. And I saw this painting, and I immediately knew that was the cover of my book. Wow. Nina had been haunting me. My rhyme poem was getting like 10 pages at that point. <laughs> And I love that it's just kind of like dreamy, but also kind of dripping and kind of um, grotesque. And that's how I kind of feel like my experience with racism is that kind of like gauzy, dreamy, grotesque, kind of all smashed together. And it's called the painting is called I Think I'm a Nina mm-hmm. Simone. And it's off of a, of, of a picture of her coming out of the airport. Oh, nice. Um, Holding all these flowers. Yeah. Um, so they reached out and he said yes. And that happened actually with my chat book. I, I reached out to Amy Sherald. I have one of her pieces who did the uh, portrait for Michelle Obama. And it was the same thing. When I saw her painting, I was like, that's going to be the cover. <laughs> Aesthetics are very important to me. Well, and you, you get in early, it seems like. And uh, <laughs> good for you to marry these two forms, which, of course, gets us back to the beginning and the ekphrastic quality of not just Natasha Trethway, but your poetry. But in a way, all poetry mm-hmm. has this quality of referring to other art. But there's mm-hmm. something special about how you're doing it in this book and in these poems. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm really happy that Nashville opens this fine book. Nashville by Tiana Clark, as well as Natasha Trethewey's poem, Repentance, can be found on NewYorker.com. Natasha Trethewey's latest book is Thrall. Tiana Clark's full-length debut, I Can't Talk About the Trees Without the Blood, will be published in September. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope-A-Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.